ಸಾಖಿಲಶಾಸ್ತ್ರಸುಧಾಜಲಧೆ ಮಹಿತೋಪನಿಷತ್ಕಥಿತಾರ್ಥನಿಧೆ ಹೃದಯೆ ಕಲಯೆ ವಿಮಲೌ ಚರಣ ಶಂಕರೇಶಿಕಮೇಶರಣಸಾಗರದುಖವಿಧ ರಚಯಾಖಿಲರ್ಶನ ನಿಜಬೋಧವಿಚಾರಣಚಾರುಮತೆ ಕಲೇಶ್ವರಜೀವಿವೇಕವಿಧಂಕರೇಶಿಕಮೇಶರಣ ಸಮಜಾತಚೇತಸಿ ಕೌತುಕಿಯ ಮೋಹ ಮಹಾಜಲಧಿಂಕರೇಶಿಕಮೇಶರಣ ಶಿಕಮೇಶರಣಸಮದರ್ಶನಲಾಲಸತೀನಮಿಮಂ ಪರಿಪಾಲಯಂಕರೇಶಿಕಮೇಶರಣಸಂಕರೇಶಿಕಮೇಶರಣ ಹರಿಯೋಂ since we are meeting for the first time happy new year happy pongal and happy today as we are starting with the evening sessions with a new text again <clears throat> how many of you are very new here for the first time 
welcome i was not going to ask you any questions like very scared <clears throat> so let us begin with the prayer sahana bhavatu and guru brahma सहनावतु सहनौ भुनत्तु सह वीर्यंकवाहै तेजस्वीनावधीतमस्तुमाषावै ओ गुरुर्ब्रह्मा गुरुर्विष्णु गुरुर्देवो गुरुरेव परम ब्रह्मा तस्म श्रीगुरव नम तस्म श्रीगुरव नम welcome to this evening satsangs we have seen couple of upanishads we have seen various texts in these evening lectures so i thought <clears throat> after katopanishad that i'll take it up a little a notch higher one of the most beautiful texts is this drug drishya viveka it is considered among the lists of preliminary test texts before going into prasthanatrayi <clears throat> prasthanatrayi upanishads bhagavad gita and brahma sutras and of the prakarana texts this is held with great reverence because it offers nothing but no nonsense pure straight logic and in advaita vedanta there are many such stalwarts who have given such literature of them the greatest 
is Bhagavan Adi Shankaracharya ji himself. <coughs> you have heard of him, right? Adi Shankaracharya. Your head movements are very confusing. Yes, no. Very confusing. So Adi Shankaracharya ji, Traditionally, by those who have written his biographies, there are about 13 or 14 biographies, which is called Shankara Digvijayam. Traditionally, they believe <coughs> that Adi Shankaracharyaji was born about 500 BC. And he was born in God's own country. That's how they claim it these days. Do you know where I'm talking about? Kerala. And Kerala is such a beautiful tropical area which has strong roots of traditions. In fact, our lineage of tradition, of Chinmaya mission, whether you look at Gurudev or his Guru Maharaj, Tapon Maharaj, or the Diksha Guru, which is Swami Shivananji, they all hail from Kerala. So does Adi Shankaracharyaji also. <clears throat> in fact, the very house that he was born in, not the place where he grew up in, the place where he grew up in is Kaladi, but the place where he was born in, his maternal house, is in a place called Velianad. And that house for these many centuries up until 1980s, late 1980s, it belonged to <coughs> the lineage or the family of Adi Shankaracharyaji. In 1980, because of their financial constraints, it became a public knowledge that they were going to sell that entire property. And whenever such traditional homes with such great lineage are sold in the market. Have you gone to Udaipur, Jaipur and such places? All those big, big palaces, what have they become? Hotels. So you will find that even in Kerala such traditional homes are often offered as uh, those exotic uh, places to live in and there were plans of somebody buying it and as soon as Puja Gurudev came to know this, he said whatever is the market value, increase it by 10 times and buy that property. <clears throat> we want to maintain that tradition of Adi Shankaracharya because this 
particular generation may not recognize the contributions of this great master, seldom it be used for some menial purposes. And since then, it was the hub for our Chinmay Mission research study called Chinmay International Foundation, where there is a lot of Indology, Indic studies and Sanskritam research. <clears throat> Some of the most ancient um, manuscripts, they have a manuscript section wherein they are saving these manuscripts, getting them from all over the world actually. They have about three, four thousand uh, manuscripts and the most ancient one is about 600 BC and to maintain them is quite costly, <laughs> it is not easy. So that they do not just, they are so brittle that they just powder in your hands if you do not know how to handle them. And now today, <coughs> which is about one week ago, that the Indian government finally came across to give permission to launch Chinmay Vishwa Vidyalaya or Vishwa Vidya Peet. And now it is official that Adi Shankaracharya's place of birth will be the head office for the Chinmay Vishwa Vidya Peet, wherein it will launch a university in studying the scriptures, studying Sanskrit and various other aspects. <coughs> now, less about what we do with uh, his property, let us know more about his life. His father and mother, Shivaguru and Aryamba, <coughs> it is said that they did not have children for a long time. And on one morning, Aryamba woke up with a very strange dream. And she turned to her husband and wanted to share that dream. And the husband started narrating that same dream. And they both had same dream as if somebody had plugged in you know, a splitter and put it in both of their heads to have the same dream. And uh, there was a choice that they had to make in that dream. The choice was you have not been blessed with a child. Do you want a child who is worthless but lives long? Or do you want a child who is, who is going to be an amazing, brilliant person, but he will live a very short life of 16 years only? And incidentally, both parents chose to have the one who is blessed with only 16 years and thus was born in a short while and he was named Shankara. <clears throat> By the time he was about two and a half, three years old, 
living in an environment where education, teaching was a regular part, he seemed to pick things very fast. So they introduced him to the Akshara Abhyasa, introduction of syllables and uh, vocabulary and other things in a very traditional way. And pretty soon he could, you know, devote books after books, like, you know, he would read them. Like, is there a book that you picked up that you couldn't put it down? Any such good novel that you read recently? Example, masking. Harry Potter, okay. So, Harry Potter, once you pick, so Adi Shankaracharya's Harry Potter's were these scriptures that he would just sit there, keep reading through them. And he was barely three and a half, four years old, and he would read through these books. And while he was barely three and a half years old, he also lost his father, and he was raised by a single parent. His mother raised him and put him in a Gurukula. Gurukula is something like a, a residential kind of an environment that the student goes and lives with the Guru and learns. And every so often in between they have breaks and they come back. One such break, he asked, Mom, I need your permission. I said, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go? He said, uh, I want to give up this, you know, worldly life. Imagine a six, seven year old <clears throat> coming to you and saying, I'm thinking of taking sannyas. I'm thinking of renouncing the world. What would your reaction be? You know, give them a toy or give them something to eat or jakhil. <laughs> You'll not take it that seriously. You know, how serious can a child who is barely six, seven years old have a grip about understanding life, understanding the world to live in and then to renounce it. <clears throat> then by the time he was about eight years old, I don't know if he played a trick or Vidhi or the Almighty helped his course that he was taking shower and in those days there were no bathrooms or uh, shower heads in the bathrooms they would all go to the nearest pond or a lake. So the nearest uh, river that was running through Kaladi, even today if you go there, it is barely to your waist height. And alligators or crocodiles are not found in shallow waters. They are usually in deep waters. And he goes there, he was swimming and he starts shouting that a crocodile has caught him. And it is his, almost his last moments of life. And in the last moments of his life, instead of asking to be saved, he says, Oh mother, instead of panicking about my life, they say that in the last breath of your life, if you renounce the world, there are a lot of you know, punya. Why don't you give me that permission? And in that utter sheer panic, she also said, Tathastu, maybe it's so. <coughs> as soon as she gave him the permission, he walks out and says, the crocodile just left me. 
the moment you gave me this permission. There are a lot of people that interpret that the Maya is like the crocodile and the moment you have the intense desire to learn that knowledge through renouncing the world, that Maya loses its grip. So he came out and the mother stood by his, her word and he went in search of his guru. And it is said that, and there are various stories that go around how he met his guru. One of the most interesting ones, the most inspiring ones is this eight year old <coughs> comes to Sri Bhagavad Padacharyaji, Govinda Bhagavad Padacharyaji and then he says, I have come here to renounce the world and I need you to initiate me into sannyasa. Now that guru was little uh, taken aback, have you informed at your house? Where are you from? And this was way, what today would be called as uh, borders of uh, Gujarat and Madhya Pradesh, where Narmada meets. So it was there. So from Kaladi, way in south, he had walked all the way up to meet his guru. And he was very insistent about receiving it. So instead of uh, you know rejecting him, he said, let me give him a big task so that it will keep him occupied and if he is not very serious, he will himself run away from the ashram. It, it happens in, even in Vedanta course, at least every batch has one or two of them that when you go sleeping, they are there in the ashram, when you wake up, you suddenly come to know that they have, they ran away. <coughs> We are sharing notes, comparing notes. So he thought, you know, maybe if he is not very serious, he will leave the ashram himself. I don't need to put an effort to tell him that you are not qualified. So he thought for a while and said, have you heard of Vishnu Sahasranama? So this energetic young boy, he said, I can chant it for you. So if you have memorized it, I want you to browse through various scriptures and give me your commentary on each word of that Vishnu Sahasranama. So this boy sincerely went back, found a secluded corner and started writing. <coughs> Do you know how many days it took him or months? It took him, he finished that entire commentary overnight. There are many people that I know who have gotten PhDs trying to research on a certain pattern that has evolved in that commentary. And he effortlessly wrote that commentary overnight. And it was not like a simple word to word meaning, Vishwam world. Vishnu, one of the names of Lord Vishnu. He has an introduction which is profound. And every word as he is explaining, and you look, go through the entire commentary, he has referred to about 13 different Upanishads. He has referred to 
you know various aspects of the vedas both the purva mimamsa as well as the uttara mimamsa <coughs> which is the upanishad then he has referred to various scriptures like bhagavad uh, mahabharata ramayana and uh, different puranas that this particular word was used in this particular scripture in this particular instance meaning that this could give this kind of a meaning but here in this flow probably it is this scripture that can be quoted and he quotes that left and right and all that he did it in under a night and next day morning when his guru had finished his puja and other things he goes submits this and he says i finished the commentary it took the guru to read through govind bhagavat padacharya ji to read through everything meticulously probably 2 3 days having gone through half of it he called for young shankara and he said it will be my privilege to give you sanyasa and thus he was initiated into sanyasa then he spent with his guru and again there are lots of uh, commentaries that talk about what he may have done one of the most profound things that comes across is he was after a long period of gap he was again he did the same job which vedavyas ji had did so he wrote down the entire vedic literature as a fresh copy so that people would have you know this vedic literature to write it down or to understand it or to memorize it people spend entire lifetime to memorize it and he did that in couple of years then with the permission of his guru he went across for the first time bharat darshan <clears throat> when i say bharat darshan it is not like you know there is a travel agent and uh, you have uh, nice uh, hotels booked and uh, nice food supplied and you have cars and flights and uh, itinerary prepared the only means especially for a sanyasi in those days was the trusted two feet so he walked across the entire length and breadth of bharatavarsha bharatavarsha not the india that we know today the greater india various corners that he traveled and then he realized that the only way to inspire people to bring in a change in their life is through educating them and there were a lot of tangential streams of thought lot of different schools of thought that had percolated into the hindu society that it was very difficult for an ordinary person to weed out what is uh, tradition what is uh, prescribed what is not prescribed everything and anything based out of conveniences had become a part of life had become a part of tradition and in order to weed that out in those ancient days they had a very brilliant system that if you do not agree with or if you have a challenging view then somebody who is prescribing a tradition you could call them out for a debate and there was a 
precursor or a, a presupposition that was written, unwritten is whoever defeats the other person logically in the debate, it is pure logic, whoever defeats the other person in the debate, that person who has lost should shun away the tradition that they are in and accept the tradition that have that has been um, that has defeated them recently. And the system that you go through is something like when you do your PhDs in today's world that you have to write your thesis and then you have to defend it. There is a panel of them who will uh, evaluate it. Similarly, here there is that process of evaluation. And Bhagavan Adi Shankaracharyaji step by step went from the southernmost to the northernmost, knocked on various doors of different traditions, <coughs> and he was barely what, what, a teenager who would knock on these great traditions and knock them out. And he travelled across and there is Vidyaranya Swami's uh, biographical uh, account on his life wherein he says that his health was also not that great. He did not actually take, care, take good care of his health because he was so single pointedly focused about reaching across to these masses and bringing this knowledge knowledge of the true nature of one's own self as the most focused point which alone can liberate anybody. And while establishing this, he has written various compositions. I have his complete works printed and uh, this size books, I mean I am talking of the length of it, not the width, but wider books. There are about 14 books in fine print, 14 books worth that he has written in his entire life. And his entire life's worth uh, work can be put in various categories. The first category is the compositions or books like these which are called Prakarana Grantha. These Prakarana Granthas are Tattva Bodha, Atma Bodha, Drigdrishya Viveka, Viveka Chudamani, Upadesha Sahasri and yesterday we were discussing and Yatindra was saying that Upadesha Sahasri is like Viveka Chudamani on steroids. And it is a, a well researched work and there are many such Prakarana Granthas that he has composed. Added to that, name any god or goddess, any deity, <coughs> he has a, a stotra dedicated to that particular deity, Ganesha, Ganesha Pancharatna. <coughs> Do you know Ganesha Pancharatna? How does it begin? Wow. 
Mudakarartamodakam Sadavimukti Sadakam. Whether it is Shiva, different aspects of Shiva, Kalabhairava, Annapurna Devi, Saraswati, you name any deity and there are at least one stotra. On the top of it, there are some amazing bhakti texts that he has written. The most prominent one of them is the Saundarya Lahari, <coughs> which is talking about the greatness of Mother Divine. These are his uh, bhakti texts. Then there are those books which can be talked about as spontaneous outbursts. We have already done one text like that. Do you remember which one? Bhajagovindam. You said Kenopanisha? Man, I am hurt. Deeply hurt. So, Bhajagovindam, you may have heard the rendition of uh, M.S. Subalakshmi. M.S. Subalakshmi ji has chanted both Vishnu Sahasranam and uh, it's, it's a very old and a very profound one. That even today when you go to sacred places like Badrinath or Dwaraka, the first thing early in the morning that is played is M.S. Subalakshmi's voice uh, and that Vishnu Sahasranama being chanted. <coughs> so, Bhajagovindam is one of those spontaneous outbursts. There is one that he composed when he was hardly 6-7 years old. The story goes that he had gone out in Biksha while he was still at Gurukula and this mother comes out <coughs> with tears in her eyes saying, son, wish I had something to give you. All that I have is this dry amla. Amla is uh, gooseberries, dried one, that with few pieces. He was so touched by her sincerity that he stood there and a spontaneous outburst that he requested the blessings of uh, goddess Lakshmi Devi and it is believed that in that house there were rain of uh, gooseberries which were made of gold and I have had the privilege to visit that house. Those people who uh, belong to that lineage, <coughs> I have had an opportunity to visit that house. Kanakadhara Stotram. There is one more beautiful one which happened in Kashi, where he his outbursts, uh, people have compiled it and called it Manisha Panchakam. So, that, that is one category in itself. <coughs> and the th fourth most important one are his commentaries which he started from Vishnu Sahasranama. He covered various aspects of commentaries on Upanishads, Bhagavad Gita and Brahma Sutras. There are some texts that he has commented like Sanat Sujatiyam. There are, uh, I mean on the top of all of this, he was also an administrative genius. He established four different ashrams in four corners of India, one in, in Shringeri, second one in Dwaraka, third one in Puri, Jagannath Puri, 
and the fourth one in um, Jyotirmat, which is about 100 kilometers down from Badrinath. And he has also written, how can one be a good administrator and an organizer, Pithamnaya and Mathamnaya, how to run these ashrams. And if you read through it, he was like a thorough administrator, who to select, how to raise funds, how to channelize those funds, how to employ those funds in such a way that they are recurring benefit for the society as well as for sustaining the ashram. And he was thorough. And if you go as a yatra from southernmost tip to the northernmost, there is not a single temple which does not have a history where Adi Shankaracharya has not touched its core. He rebuilt all these temples or he was a cause for rebuilding all these temples. As far east as Kamakya in Assam and there is one in today's Pakistan, it is claimed that Adi Shankaracharya visited that too. In Kashmir, uh, how many of you have watched uh, Mission Kashmir? If you are wondering what is Mission Kashmir, that song Boomro Boomro, uh, that one, have you watched it? So there is a plot to blow up a mountain, the base of that mountain there is a army camp, do you remember which mountain it is? It is called the Shankara mountain. On the top of it is the Sharada Peetha. Kashmir was supposed to be thriving with scholarly people in those days. <clears throat> now they are all kicked out about 25-26 years ago and they have been not allowed to stay in those days. So he has travelled far and wide and he has travelled multiple times. And all this under a sweet short span of 32 years. And if there is somebody that can be claimed as a man of achievement, it is this individual who started out when he was probably a teenager and by the time 30, he reached 32, he already quit his body. And between that, he had travelled across India, for many of us to travel across by foot that many times in itself will be a big deal. While travelling, he has composed these many things. While composing, I do not think he had ever an opportunity to sit down, compose, write. Probably he was just walking and uh, there must have been uh, people to scribe and then he would keep dictating. And probably you would have multiple scribes that there will be one thought flow going here and another thought flow, you know, there will be people writing it as he was walking. And on the top of it to establish these administrative hubs and have trained, tutored people who could further enhance all that which he had established to a greater height. So today if we look back our lineage. <coughs> That we already have now, what, 
third in Chinmaya mission. So, we will have to start from Swarupananji, then his guru, Tejomayananji, his guru, Swami Chinmayananji, his guru, Swami Taponam Maharaj, his and there Gurudev got Diksha, Sanyas Diksha from Swami Shivananji. And Shivananji took his Diksha from Shringeri. And Shringeri was established by Adi Shankaracharyaji. Adi Shankaracharyaji's guru is Govinda Bhagavat Padacharya. Govinda Bhagavat Padacharya's guru, I mean, I can trace back to almost a history, a profound history of 8000 years. 8000 years of this knowledge being transferred from Guru to Sishya. That which you are connected to today through this dialogue, how ancient is this tradition? It is about 8000 years old. Such profound tradition and such deep knowledge, and when I say deep knowledge, we will see it through, through this Drigdrishya Viveka. Now, before going into <coughs> Drigdrishya Viveka, what is the prayojana or what is the purpose of this Drigdrishya Viveka? As it says in the title itself very clearly, there are three words there, sorry, three words there. Drit, Drishya, Viveka. What is the translation of the word Viveka? Viveka translated means discrimination. Now, in this country, that word has been indiscriminately used, <coughs> that it has dark shady corners of understanding for it. But the true meaning of discrimination is to understand the difference between that which is necessary and that which is not. I am putting it in a very simple manner. How do you eat a banana? It is not a trick question, it is a simple question. Peel what? Go through the whole process. Peel whose skin off? The banana, okay. It seemed very violent. Peel the skin off. And if you ask a dancer, they would probably stand on one foot first and then you peel the skin and then eat the fruit inside. What happens to the peel? You discard it. How? I did not ask. You discard it. I always go through this in my head. Does anybody ever have any kind of emotional entanglement with the peel? Oh, peel. 
if not for you this fruit inside would not have been protected traveled across reached to the store and from there i procure it if not for you is there any kind of sentimental value attached to it it purpose is done and it is discarded there are you not applying this discrimination of that which is required is taken that which is not required it is discarded now taking this to more subtler understanding in life whenever we were in a chaotic situation and we reflect upon such situations those confusions occur isn't it because we have lost clarity between what is priority and what is not and most of the times it is because we are entangled in that which is not a priority is what causes our immediate confusion suffering or sorrow born thereof so the key in our life through every experience is to maintain this discriminatory knowledge to understand what is mukhya and what is gauna what is important and what is not important but many of us have something called duryodhana syndrome do you all know duryodhana right so once vidura took him aside <clears throat> and gave him his peace of mind that peace of mind is called vidura niti as a very profound uh, advice that he gave before starting that he asked duryodhana hey duryodhana you also have gone through the education system you also are educated with the most profound knowledge why is it that your actions do not reflect that knowledge in your day to day life to that duryodhana responds it's one of the most off quoted shlokas of duryodhana usually you don't quote him you know what duryodhana said <laughs> no nobody quotes him but this is one of those rare opportunities when uh, to highlight the heights of stupidity you have to quote duryodhana So Duryodhana says, "Janami dharmam nachame pravritti. Janami adharmam nachame nivritti. Kenaapi deve na hridisthite na." He says, "Janami dharmam. Don't teach me, you know, dharma and adharma. What is righteous and what is not righteous? What is lawful and what is not lawful? What is good and what is bad? Don't teach me that. I know it." janami dharmam but the flaw is i don't know how to practice that dharma in life janami adharmam i also know what is unrighteous 
but I do not know how to pull myself out of it. And instead of taking that responsibility, the onus on himself, he says, what to do? God is making me do this. <coughs> Whatever I do in life, who is responsible for it? Whether I do it knowingly, unknowingly, consciously, unconsciously, who ends up as the responsible party for whatever I do? I may love to blame my parents. I may love to blame my president. I am talking about the recent one. Or the one prior to the previous one. I would love to blame the society for my poor choice, but at the end of the day, it is not they who are responsible, it is I who is responsible for every decision in my life. We cannot blame it on some external factor like Duryodhana did. Some God is sitting in and he is making me do it. In the field of activity, there is nobody from the external that can force us to do something. Can I force you to do something? Can anybody force anybody to do something? Unless you feel necessary to do it. In college, you goof off something and then you cut a sorry figure in front of your parents and say, what to do? My friends made me do it. Duh. What happened to your thinking? My parents used to, yeah, I was not a very promising child. <laughs> I had my own share. And my father especially had this constant dialogue. Somehow whenever at home, though I am from Telugu background, whenever I was to be scolded, the scolding was always in Hindi. And my father would say, Teri buddhi kya ghas gayi thi? It's like, usually it is the cow or the sheep that graze on grass. He says, did your buddhi become like a cow or a sheep and was it grazing on the grass, why didn't you apply it? <clears throat> and I had a smart, I thought I had a smart aleck answer and I got what today I can say politically as top spin, heavy top spin. Do you understand top spin? So I said, Papa, I have only this much buddhi. If I end up using that also, then I will not have it when I have to actually use it. So I am saving it for a later day. See, see, vidya, whenever it is applied, knowledge when it is applied, 
it never reduces but instead it grows so the subhashita says na choraharyam na rajyabhajyam na bhratrubhajyam na cha bharakari see if you have wealth you are always scared that somebody may steal it from you so you have heavy barricaded or what do you call those big things in the banks the vault the safe and many of us love watching people rob that have you seen italian job did you like it was it awesome okay ocean series i don't know how many they were 11 12 13 okay ocean 11 ocean 12 ocean 13 the biggest most unbreakable ones they break it with ease so however you want to protect it there will be somebody smarter than that to snatch it rob it if the robbers have not robbed it then the state would say pay tax rajyabhajyam and whatever is left after that as much your wealth increases your relatives also seemingly increase that's why they are called relatives related to the wealth that you grow bhratrubhajyam you have to share it with these relatives and if not you are trying to hide it and carry it everywhere bharakari it is very heavy but what is vidya knowledge it is unlike any of these wealths vyaye krute vardhata eva nityam vidyadhanam sarvadhana pradhanam vidya is that kind of wealth that the more you give the more it expands that knowledge which expands our understanding that knowledge which expands our horizon that discrimination that wisdom which gives us clarity to perceive through any tough situation such one is called viveka but i tried explaining it in a very gross sense of externality the subtlest aspect of this viveka is when we can understand its application in drik and drishya now what is this viveka and its application in drik and drishya that we will see next week and don't give me that look it's a cliffhanger good one so we'll continue with the first shloka next week but before we end please repeat that first shloka after me so that i can claim no no i have started the text it's on page 1 
रूपम दृश्यम लोचनम दृक लोचनम दृक तद्रश्यम दृक्तु मानसम दृश्याधिवृत्तय साक्षी दृगेवनत दृश्यते These first three shlokas are amazing, but we'll be amazed next week. Om Shanti 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 Hi Hari Hi Om Shri Guru Bhyo Namaha Hari Hi Om. Shri Dar.